The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only. And the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For the more of the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect the official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly Capture Flag More Hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know the rule. Welcome back to The Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto. As you can see, I'm here without the great Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams, but I have a wonderful co-host for this evening who I will introduce in a second. On tonight's show, we are talking all about back pain with returning guest, Dr. Austin Baraki. And, you know, since Paul is not here, I will say it. We are the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. And with us tonight is everyone's favorite physician assistant, Isabel Valdez. Isabel, thank you so much for joining us tonight. And what a fantastic episode. I know. This is a great show. So much We learned so much about back pain. Gosh, it's such a big topic. And uh, you guys are in for a treat tonight. So we have, uh, we have a fantastic conversation tonight with Dr. Austin Baraki, who is an internist. He's an educator and he works primarily in an academic hospital as an academic hospitalist and is an assistant professor in me- of medicine in El Paso, Texas, where he enjoys teaching a variety of topics with a particular interest in physiology and clinical reasoning. So you'll see that tonight. And he taught us so much about when to image, what meds to use, if at all, the most important thing about movement and helping and encouraging your patient to get moving so that we can get them back to normal. So, so much to talk about. I think we need to jump into this. So ready for this? Uh, Isabel, I I wanted to just let you know that I did have back surgery. It, It was a while ago now. Oh, how long ago? What happened? It it was actually about a week back. A week back. Okay. Oh, a week back. Yeah. Thank you. I fell right into a that. I <laughs> fell right into that, y'all. I did. I'm so sorry. Yeah. I'm going to disappoint. Right. Thank but let's you. just get rolling. <laughs> okay. All right. And, nice uh, pun. A reminder that this... Thank you. A reminder that this and most episodes are available through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Go there to claim your CME. Austin, we've been talking for a while. You're a good sport. You're you're way out in El Paso, which is which is awesome. It's been a while since we talked, so they've just heard your bio. But tell the audience a little bit what kind of hobbies or interests do you have these days. Uh, gosh, I've picked up some new ones since moving to El Paso because coming from San Antonio, there's a gigantic mountain in my backyard. So my wife and I have picked up hiking. And then on the side, I've continued my long-term hobbies. I've been a lifelong multi-sport athlete, basically. So I train and compete in um, weightlifting as well as uh, in swimming. I was a college swimmer. And so I've recently gotten back in the pool because I have an incredible natatorium, uh, like an Olympic-sized pool, a few minutes from my house. So I've been getting back and doing that, which has been fun. So that's a lot of physical activity, I guess, is the theme. But <laughs> That sounds good. That's probably good for the back, especially the swimming, I'm going to guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Can't hurt. Yeah, and for the heat that you have in El Paso, because it's kind of toasty out there. Maybe not today, but in the summer. It must be nice out there. Yes, we're very happy here. And then checking out the food scene and doing all, all sorts of other things to explore the city. It's been fun. All right. That, that, sounds, like, that sounds great. I'm glad you're liking the transition. Tell me, what about book recommendations? Do you have a book recommendation for the audience? 
Yeah, I recently read uh, a few, but one of the more impactful ones was a book called How Minds Change by David McCraney. He is well known as a podcaster. He does the podcast uh, titled You Are Not So Smart. It's kind of a, a psychology-focused uh, podcast where he, he talks about kind of the, the ways that we come to our beliefs. And, and in this book, he it kind of ties together all the most recent, current, I guess, psychological research um, into that process, which has been really impactful given how contentious and polarizing so many things are these days, whether it be related to politics or COVID or, you know, vaccine hesitancy or any number of things. And going through that book was really impactful as far as like, how do I approach those kind of conversations with people? And to be honest, in many situations, whether I approach those conversations with certain <laughs> people. Uh, so I would definitely, I definitely think that for anybody who interacts with other humans, uh, the, the, the content of that book is, is very helpful. I'm I'm very intrigued. I imagine his conclusion wasn't that you should as assume the other person has bad intent and yell at them, <laughs> tell them they're stupid and he hate is, everyone he is, that disagrees uh, with you. He is an excellent communicator of this uh, material and he retains uh, quite a bit of optimism about our ability to uh, change people's minds. <laughs> All right, I prescribe I that for the, the entire internet. Yeah, there you go. I prescribe <laughs> that book for the entire internet. So then there's it's kind of like a two-in-one recommendation. So the book, How Minds Change, and the podcast is You Are Not So Smart. Did I catch that? Oh, yeah. Okay, because I I, I'm a, I like the podcast, hence here, right? Oh, mm -hmm. great. This is exciting. Thank you. Isabel, as a multi-time co-host, you, you told me beforehand you've never given a pick of the week. So now's your chance. What is your pick of the week for this week? Now's my chance. And also not having Paul here, um, I won't feel like it's I'm going to have someone like supersede me because he always gives great ones. So mine is the musical Six. I, I really like this musical. It's about, uh, it's a kind of like a sing-off contest between the six wives of Henry VIII. And uh, two of the wives are not English-born, uh, Catherine of Aragon and Anna of Cleves. And my cat's names include her. So my cat's names is Anna Maria Catarina. That includes two of the queens. Her name is also Anna Maria Catarina Doxycyclina, which is Spanish for doxycycline because that's my favorite <laughs> antibiotic. So for short, we call her doxy. And, um, but anyhow, six, it's a great musical, six, uh, amazing cast, very diverse cast, all of uh, women written by non-binary, uh, LGBTQ authors. Uh, so it's also a great, uh, a great representation all around. And they recently got their Tony and I'm excited to see them very soon. Well, Isabel, thank you for your first pick of the week. And how about now a case from Cashlack Memorial? This episode is brought to you by Grammarly. An audience, you know what? It's busy. It's fall. There's soccer, like 10 games a weekend if you're like me. But Grammarly, that's going to help you save time in your day because it's the all-in-one writing tool that makes your communication clear and concise and easier than ever. Personally, I love Grammarly because it follows me across all the platforms where I live and work and helps me with better communication because I struggle with that sometimes despite being someone who runs a podcast. But we're putting out weekly show notes and emails and Grammarly really helps us be concise and clear in our communications. Grammarly's free version offers comprehensive spelling, grammar, and punctuation suggestions. And if you use Grammarly Premium, you get clarity-focused full-sentence rewrites where Grammarly say, hey, Watto, I don't like the way you said this. Try saying it this way instead. I love it. 
Finally, Grammarly is a free tone detector, so if you're Paul Williams, maybe you don't sound like such a curmudgeon all the time in your written communication. Get more time in your day with confidence in your work with Grammarly. Go to Grammarly.com slash curb to sign up for a free account, and when you're ready to upgrade to Grammarly Premium, get 20% off for being our listener. That's 20% off at G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash curb. Let's start with Mr. Lumbago. He is a 44-year-old male with a history of hypertension and obesity who presents to the clinic with a four-day history of low back pain. He spends most of his days sitting in front of a computer while working from home, uh, but he recently had to do more heavy lifting to move around his belongings in his living space because he had to make a new office desk. That is Mr. Lumbago who came in today. Yeah. Um, and Austin, as the big concern, he came in with back pain. Um, and it's acute back pain because it just started four days ago. Could you just tell us, what is your general approach to assessing this kind of a situation of acute back pain? Like, what are the kind of questions you would ask this patient just in general? So the general approach to a patient like this who comes in to a primary care clinic with acute low back pain, I kind of... Uh, Overarch the overarching goal is going to be risk stratification. So, so what do I mean by that? We want to get a sense of what are the, what is the likelihood of serious underlying disease as a cause of this pain, uh, and then what is the risk of progression to persistent pain and disability? And so that can kind of somewhat uh, you know uh, uh, artificially be broken down into a biomedical assessment, which is targeted more towards the serious underlying diseases that would merit a change in management, and then the psychosocial assessment, which then relates more towards risk of progression, persistent pain, persistent disability. So ultimately, we really want to try to answer a few basic questions in this assessment. We want to know, is there reason to suspect serious or underlying systemic disease as a cause of pain? Number two, is there a reason or is there an indication for a surgical evaluation in the short term for this patient? And then the third thing, what psychosocial factors might be influencing this person's pain experience and potentially increasing the risk for poor long-term outcomes? So people may be familiar with the first two scenarios when it comes to serious underlying systemic disease or indications for surgical evaluation. That's where the topic of quote-unquote red flags comes up. And then the psychosocial assessment um, is has kind of, as a in, in parallel, been termed quote-unquote yellow flags. This terminology is not necessarily broadly accepted, but that's what we're talking about. So the approach to this patient with acute back pain in clinic, we want to risk stratify them from a biomedical standpoint and a psychosocial standpoint so that we can get a sense of, do I need to change management now for this person? Um, and what is their risk of progression to long-term pain and disability? Because that can also, in its own way, impact what we do with people. So, so when folks come into the clinic with this kind of a complaint, when it comes to the biomedical assessment, it's really important to know your base rates of disease, right? This is the concept of like pretest probability, right? So uh, you want to know what is the likelihood of any number of potential differential diagnoses uh, in the primary, in the modern primary care clinic setting. And in general, the likelihood of serious systemic diseases as a cause of back pain is quite low in a, again, a modern primary care setting. So just to, these are not statistics that need to be memorized, but just to give some examples, you know, the likelihood of uh, a compression fracture, pre basic pretest probability, all comers might be something like 0.5%. Of course, that increases in the setting of trauma, patients are on steroids, they're elderly, female, etc. Malignancy risk around 0.7% estimated, axial spondyloarthropathy 
fancy way of saying like inflammatory back pain from ankylosing spondylitis, something like that, about 0.3% infections in primary care, about 0.01%. Um, and then there, so, so, so overall, you see that these likelihoods are pretty low. But of course, the practice setting that you're in is going to impact some of these probabilities, right? But having that understanding that upwards of 90 to 95% of cases of low back pain um, that present to a primary care clinic, you're not you're probably not going to be able to identify a single kind of nociceptive source, a single biological source of pain that you can identify confidently, that you can identify reliably. This is what's often termed nonspecific low back pain, even though some people don't like that terminology. It's debated and criticized in the literature for sometimes for, for all sorts of, of reasons. But that's kind of the bottom line is for most primary care clinicians who have a patient with acute back pain coming into the clinic, a very large portion of the time, you're going to not be able to confidently and reliably diagnose a single source of pain. And when I say confidently, it's not because you're not a confident person. It's because <laughs> it can't be done. And that's kind of what the best yeah. evidence at present kind of tells us. I just want to try to just uh, recap just some of what we talked about so far. So the you, you started off saying like that patients come with baggage when they're coming into the clinic. <laughs> like, so Mr. Lumbago, Lumbago, however we're going to say it, He's coming in, he's got this baggage, he has these beliefs underlying. Maybe he thinks that because he has pain, it means there's damage, so mm -hmm. he shouldn't be moving. And then you talked about that we have power as the clinicians to influence these beliefs, um, that really we're going to be trying to do this like risk stratification. And you talked about there's the biomedical portion and there's the psychosocial portion. So now we're sort of talking a little bit about the biomedical portion and you're saying that, uh, you know, we're trying to figure out like the base rate of serious disease, fortunately, is pretty low. And most of these patients are going to have this nonspecific low back pain. And I, I think part of the reason when we talk about imaging is, is probably because you, it's hard to pin, even if you have abnormal findings, it's, it's hard to really pin them on, did they cause this pain or not? So, uh, okay. So I, I interrupted that, but Let's get back to this. So the bio, the biomedical assessment that we're performing on this patient, and you talked a little bit about red flags, yellow flags. We'll we'll get to that. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, the next step in the in the assessment when I'm taking my history, it typically involves starting with something open ended and letting the person kind of tell tell their story from the time this began, right? And and oftentimes, if you let them do that and you listen carefully, you can hear hints of a lot of that baggage, uh, depending on the way they say certain certain things, the way they describe certain things. They might drop in a little something about, oh, and, and you know, everybody in my family has had bad backs and they needed surgery. This And that tells you a little bit something about where they're coming from and what their expectations are if you, if you listen closely for those kind of things. So I'll let them tell their story and pay attention for signs and symptoms that could be suggestive of some kind of serious underlying pathology. Of course, people don't typically come into primary care clinics saying, you know, I'm having back pain and I, and, and I can't move either of my legs. Again, that's indicative of the practice setting that we're in and what our probability is. But there are still saying things that you should certainly be listening to, new, you, you know, and we'll, and we'll get to the, the red flag shortly. And then also for these psychosocial factors that can impact recovery. So, so my history typically involves, obviously, the, the present illness, so to speak, uh, the, the back pain specific information, trying to get a sense of is there pain in other areas going on? Is there some sort of more generalized pain syndrome that could be going on? Or if pain in other areas could pull my attention elsewhere, right? Because not all back pain is related to a primary back issue. There can be GI things, cardiovascular things, pulmonary things, you know, other systems that can have pathology that can also refer or radiate to, to the back. So looking for pain in other areas can be helpful. 
try to get a sense about their baseline physical function. What are their physical activity habits? What are they typically able to do? What do they enjoy doing? Because that may tie in later to my recommendations to them when it comes to, to physical activity. And, and getting further back into their history of like, do they have prior back pain experiences? Because that can then impact their thoughts and expectations about the situation. What have they been told by others? Those are all really valuable pieces of information in the, in the assessment. And then aside from all of that, I think it's also important not to view the person who's coming in with back pain as a, as a spine sitting in front of you, but rather as, as, as a person with a lot of other general health factors that can also impact what's going on with them. So things like sleep is enormous and very frequently overlooked in this situation. Not only can sleep, you know, uh, inadequate, inadequate sleep worsen pain intensity, uh, but additionally, obviously having back pain can impact sleep and sleep quality. Getting a sense of what's their mood, mental health situation, stress levels, smoking, interestingly, can also worsen, you know, pain intensity and things like that in various chronic pain states. So assessing general health, being a good internist or primary care clinician um, is, is really helpful in this setting aside from just kind of myopically focusing on the back. So then from there, I just try to integrate this information for my overall risk stratification. And so that sounds like a difficult task. And I think that when you have seen and assessed lots and lots and lots of patients with this, uh, particularly getting a sense of the, the, the baggage, as you talked about, the psychosocial variables that can impact recovery, you can kind of get a sense of where they are on a risk stratification spectrum just from listening to them to them talk and asking some pointed questions. But sometimes, you know, if you're earlier on, you haven't seen a ton of these, or you want something more evidence-based, structured, guided to help with the bottom line risk stratification, there's a variety of tools that help with this. Uh, and there aren't really ones that are demonstrably superior to others. I think a very valid one that can be used in the primary care clinic setting is something called the Start Back Tool. It stands for Subgroups for Targeted Treatment. It's a nine-item instrument, nine questions, basically. And based on the score, um, it stratifies people into low, medium, or high risk, um, you know, as far as persistence, progression, disability, things like that. And then the higher the score, the more likely you might be to engage multimodal, you know, say a, a, a physical therapy, psychological treatments, things like that earlier on. Whereas if somebody is very low risk on that tool, you might not need to do anything. You might say you're very likely to be fine and send them on their way. Um, and so that has a, that tool has been kind of shown to reduce costs and, and improve outcomes and reduce time away from work and things like that for folks. And Austin, it looked when I was looking through that tool, it looked kind of like they were the yellow flags. I don't know if Isabel, if you got the same sen same sense. This is more like the psychosocial mm -hmm. yeah. questions that it's asking, right? Like risk for chronicity. Exactly. And so that's kind of why it's 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 like so many scoring systems in medicine where the more often you see that particular condition, the less likely you are to rely on a scoring system. Like anybody who works as a hospitalist, you don't use the pneumonia severity index to decide if you're going to admit the patient with pneumonia. You're just like, yeah, they're sick enough. I'm bringing them in or you're going to discharge. <laughs> right. But if you don't know how to make that decision right off the bat and you want something to help guide your decision making or your probabilities, having these kind of structured tools that tell you what are the important things that I should be paying attention to, um, a tool like that can be helpful to kind of systematize your approach to that question. Um, so that's kind of how I would restratify from the psychosocial standpoint. So bottom line with the history, the approach uh, to this person in clinic is listening to their story, eliciting their understanding, beliefs, fears, their expectations, and then filling in the gaps as far as the biomedical assessment goes, which the red flags we'll get to shortly, the psychosocial assessment, and then using this to get this overall sense of what direction do I need to go with management? Is this somebody who I can say, 
go home, you're going to be fine? Is this somebody who might need a little bit more support? Or is this somebody who's going to need a lot of support early on? Or is this one of the underlying serious diseases that's going to merit early imaging, potentially specialist referral, potentially surgical evaluation, things like that, which is the tiniest fraction of this of this group? Isabel, any, any comments or, or questions about that? No, I think it's such a great tool to start back, uh, the start back questionnaire that you gave us. And in fact, we're going to link to it in our, in our show notes for our, for our listeners, because it's something that I had not seen before. And it is really practice changing. And I also appreciate how we're listening to the whole story of the patient so that we're validating their pain is mm-hmm. kind of the get the, the whole, like we're understanding their baggage. And sometimes we, we forget it because we're just focused on the spine and like, do you have numbness or tingling? <laughs> oh, okay, great. Um, right, right. <laughs> but there's reasons to that. So I really appreciate how you're validating that for us. So I think that's great. Thank you, Austin. Thanks for that. And it, I think it's intuitive, Austin and Isabel, like where when you're talking to a person and they're like, yeah, I've had back pain a bunch of times. I think I probably need a surgery. Uh, you know, I, pain meds are the only thing that helps. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm like, whoa, this is going to be, <laughs> this is not going to go well. Uh, and and maybe they're right about some of those things. I'm not, I'm not saying that those are never the right answers, but uh, I, I just think like you can tell when it's going to be a case that's, it, or, or someone comes in, they're like, oh yeah, I, I was lift, moving some boxes in my garage. My back's a little sore. I took some NSAIDs. I just wanted you to check it out to make sure you don't yeah. think it's anything serious. I'm like, okay, this seems like it's going to go well. Yeah. Yeah. Knowing how to listen like that is a super valuable skill, both for informing your assessment and decision-making, but also because it builds rapport with the person. I mean, people know, people appreciate when their clinician listens to them and that rapport, uh, not that this is purely a transactional kind of thing, but that rapport can then be used later on when it comes to making recommendations. Perhaps you might end up in a tight spot where they want an x-ray and you don't think it's necessary. If you have built up that really strong relationship and rapport along the way, you might have an easier time and they may trust you more when it comes to, hey, let's give this a shot. Let's see how things go. And then you form a follow-up plan, which I know we'll, I know we'll get to. So that's key. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Let's, let's, we've talked red flags a couple of times. I think the audience needs to hear them now. What are, what do you look for as red flags? Yeah. So digging into this is actually very interesting because it turns out there's way less consensus on what exactly constitutes a red flag than we are taught in medical school. (laughs) Depending on how broadly you go, there are estimates that upwards of 80% of acute back pain presents with at least one red flag symptom, right? But we know that 80% of back pain is not due to a serious underlying cause. And so just like any other piece of information in the history or thing on the exam on an exam or or a, or a, or a, a, a test or image or something these historical features have varying predictive value varying sensitivity and specificity and things like that and if you're like me you can nerd out and go to the jama rational clinical exam text and look at the exact percentages for these things to de- decide what's most or least useful to ask but of course common things that we will have been taught in the course of training would be things like is there obvious trauma that preceded this back pain did they come into you know after an, a motor vehicle accident or something that may change the way you think about it age over 50 is technically on the list but like we see a lot of people who have new onset back pain over the age and that's not like necessarily everyone. like an automatic mm-hmm. imaging you see what i mean in terms of the predictive value so patients with a history of cancer that one's more serious patients uh, with unexplained weight loss people who are on chronic corticosteroids um, certainly one that increases the risk of uh, compression fractures patients who have new or progressive neurological deficits these are typically not you know at least in the primary care clinic setting the the, the very overt presentation like a flaccid leg or something but technically you know certain neurological things can manifest and develop slowly like urinary symptoms might you know you might just have an early change in frequency or flow or retention or incontinence uh, um, but it might take a little bit of time to fully manifest. So sussing that out can be can be helpful. 
But still, it's like, you know, sometimes it's a pretty weak history that you might get from somebody about the urinary habits. It might not be very, very obvious up front. Um, bilateral sciatica, quote unquote, is the common term that patients use, or bilateral radicular pain. Again, that can be something that um, is consistent with caught Aquinas syndrome. Not that uh, any of the three of us have ever seen a case, if I had to mm. play the odds there. <laughs> um, and then patients who are immunosuppressed or people who have had recent infections, things like UTIs, bacteremia, history of tuberculosis or, or TB risk factors, uh, injection drug use, those are all kind of things that I might ask about. But again, I think that it's important to know that these things have varying predictive value. So it's not like a knee-jerk reflex. If any of these things is yes, then I'm going to send you for an MRI. You have to integrate that into your overall assessment. Um, and then one that I should point out that is not a red flag that should be considered is that if patients have back pain with associated leg pain, but don't have motor weakness, that's managed the same as just back pain alone. In other words, a lot of people will think that if somebody has back pain with associated leg pain, automatically that is a herniated disc that requires urgent, you know, urgent MRI or something. That's actually not, not true. If they have you know, intact motor exam, motor strength on their neuro exam, just because you have back pain with associated leg pain, manage the same as regular old back pain. Still has, you know, good prognosis overall. It can suck, can hurt real bad. Um, it might take a bit of time to get better, but that is not something that merits, uh, you know, immediate early imaging in, in clinic. Sensory loss, would that be included in that as well? Sensory loss is a tough one. Um, that one is kind of, I've gone back and forth on that depending on a case-by-case -case basis. I've you know gotten a lot of histories where it's like maybe some mild numbness or some mild tingling, yeah, and I will too. not necessarily pursue imaging up front. Um, motor weakness is the definitive one, but sen you know, I suppose if somebody said that they, their entire leg was completely, they couldn't feel anything in their entire leg, <laughs> which I can't think of a you know, a lesion that would explain all of that. But, you know, the more dramatic it is, obviously we tend to get nudged in that direction. That one's kind of a gray area for sure. And if someone, I, I've just read, if someone has overflow incontinence, like it, it's, it's very late presentation of like cauda equina. It's, it's not like the pain is going to come first before, before they get to that. So like, yeah. they'll probably have some other symptoms before they get that. Yeah. To the extent they had urinary stuff, it was probably more subtle and progressive leading up to that um, mm. in, in many situations. Well, should we get to the exam? I think, I think we should any, I mean, this is always, I don't, I don't think we're taught physical exam, uh, you know, especially musculoskeletal physical exam too well. So mm -hmm. that's something that's been a mission of the show. It, any maneuvers that you consider particularly high yield or, or useful? Yeah. I think this is a, an interesting topic to me even. Yeah. Well, well <laughs> you'll hear my, my spiel on it, I guess. The way I view it is that you only have so much time in clinic to complete your initial assessment and provide the recommendations and interventions that are going to have the biggest impact on your patient's kind of trajectory and prognosis. And to, I'm going to sound like a broken record, I think, over the next few questions, but the goal of this assessment is to alter the probability of serious systemic disease or conditions that necessitate surgical intervention or evaluation, right? That's like top goals of this thing. If it's not either of those things, the remaining diagnoses are not crucially important for the primary care you know, clinician to differentiate among, and I'll make that case uh, in a bit. So in general, when it comes to the exam, we want to focus on things that would most significantly alter those probabilities rather than using physical exam maneuvers that might claim to differentiate between conditions that are ultimately managed similarly up front, right? Because that's spending time on things that you might ultimately manage the same rather than using that very valuable time to deepen the rapport you have with the patient, the trust, give them better education advice on how this can be managed moving forward. And so 
I think similar to some of the questions I mentioned earlier, the physical exam is also just a series of tests, each of which have their sensitivity and specificity and reliability, which we can nerd out on, um, you know, uh, separately. And th- but if nothing else, the physical exam provides some opportunity to further establish some rapport and therapeutic relationship, right? You've always, everybody's heard the, the case of the patient who went and saw the doctor and they left and they said, the doctor didn't even examine me. And it might have been something that truly did not require a hands-on exam. Lots of things don't. Uh, but but this is, a, this is an opportunity to, to establish that rapport and therapeutic relationship, even if some of the things that you're doing may not be incredibly diagnostically useful. But I think the approach to the, to the exam keeping in mind all of the p- possible issues that could be related to serious underlying disease um, or potential surgical intervention is what's kind of hovering in the back of our mind as things we would want to alter the probability of. So looking at vital signs, of course, um, you know, obviously if I have a febrile bacteremic patient someplace who has back pain, I'm thinking about it differently, but that's more typically ED hospital setting than in the clinic. Visual inspection of the back, palpation of the back, although to be clear, much of the palpation exam is pretty overrated um, in terms of its diagnostic utility. Uh, bone, bone spinal tenderness can be helpful if you suspect things like fracture or infection by history, but otherwise it might not be quite as helpful. Everybody likes to talk about paraspinal muscle tenderness or talk about how I felt muscle spasm and things like that. If you actually go to the JAMA rational clinical exam section on this, uh, they talk about the uh, diagnostic utility of paraspinal muscle tenderness, where they said this was just completely unreliable and <laughs> not diagnostically useful. So you can you can do your palpation, but keep in mind how useful is this, and don't let that unnecessarily swing your diagnostic confidence to this is 100% musculoskeletal because I felt a ten- I felt a tender muscle on their back. That series is dead to me. That's not, <laughs> that's, that's the only thing I know how to diagnose. Austin. Right. Come on. I know it's like oh, I can feel a spasm right here. So, but because I really do feel it, it feels different, but yeah, oh no, oh no. <laughs> I hate to, I hate to <laughs> burst your bubble there. Uh, and, and so then from there, obviously the targeted neurological exam is going to be what's, what's quite important. So I'll check gait, motor strength, focusing on, um, particularly if they're having radicular, you know, syndrome by, by history, uh, you know, checking things that would be consistent with the most likely, you know, nerve roots that would be involved, your L- L4, L5, S1 kind of, kind of territories. Sensation can be helpful also to get a sense of to the extent to which there may be neurological involvement, particularly on the dorsal, medial, and uh, lateral aspects of the feet can be can be helpful in that situation. Reflexes, clonus, particularly at the, the ankle and higher up, if you think something higher up could be going on. And then the kind of uh, quote-unquote herniated disc or radiculopathy, radicular tests um, for straight leg raise and, and um the ipsilateral and contralateral straight leg rays that we're kind of all taught um, how to do, which again have differing sensitivities and specificities, um, can also be done in clinic. And then outside of that neurological exam, examining other areas based on your suspicion from history, right? So is there something going on? Could they potentially have hip OA that is kind of radiating you know, and manifesting in the back. Cardiovascular causes, again, you're not seeing too many, you know, dissections in clinic that are having, presenting with back pain, pancreatitis from a GI standpoint, GU, pilo, flank pain, things like that. So the history would inform your suspicion of other organ system involvement, of course. Um, But again, like maneuvers that don't substantially alter the likelihood of serious systemic disease or neurological compromise that needs surgical intervention, most of those are not super diagnostically helpful. Like doing a range of motion assessment, for example. It doesn't tell you a whole lot. Soft tissue tenderness really doesn't tell you a whole lot. It's pretty unreliable as far as an exam maneuver goes. And so picking and choosing the things that are most useful from that standpoint, I think, can be can be good in clinic. And the same goes for a lot of the special tests. Like specialists will nerd out on special tests. I don't know how valuable they are for primary care clinicians, not only from a training standpoint, from an experience inter-rater reliability standpoint, but also like 
if you're in primary care and you're wanting to assess this patient and maybe you think that they have a low likelihood uh, of, uh, or, or you think that they may have something serious going on, but you do a special test and it's negative. Like, are you going to brush that off and say, ah, it's probably nothing now? <laughs> like it shouldn't swing your probability that hard. And so positive tests, similarly, in a low-risk patient are often more likely to be false positives than, than otherwise. And so again, I'm thinking, you know, I rely a way more on the history and then these very clear signs based on my suspicion from the history. And then the rest of your very limited clinic time is probably best used with history, reassurance, education, addressing the individual concerns, and, and kind of coming up with a shared plan from there. Do you find... Uh patient doesn't mean anything. A lot of patients say like, they're like, I have pain in my hips. And then I'm like, okay, show me your hips. And they point like to their buttocks, like their, their glutes base and, uh, you know, the sciatic notch area, anything to that, this like piriformis syndrome, uh, tight muscles in that area, or is yeah. that just like the paraspinal muscle tenderness that it's not really <laughs> that I've been taking anything? Care of. Yeah, so so that would not be suggestive of a true kind of a radicular pain. Uh, that was something right. that you would prefer radiate all the way down, you know, past past the knee in most situations. The piriformis syndrome, I will tell you, is a giant black hole of debate and controversy in it the physical therapy like world. I am not inclined to uh, to buy it as a, as a very specific clear diagnosis. I think pain can sometimes just be weird and radiate and manifest in different ways. Um, maybe there is some hip issues going on. Maybe there's some intra-articular. Maybe they have some hip OA or something like that. But pain can just be really weird sometimes. And so to the extent that somebody has butt pain associated with their with their back pain in the absence of other things that make me more concerned for serious underlying disease, I manage it pretty similarly in many situations to the, to the regular acute okay. non-specific back pain. Got it. You're, you're really Got killing it. me tonight. You really are. The piriformis <laughs> syndrome is one of my favorite ones. And I like explain it. I show them pictures. And it's so satisfying to tell people those things, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. It really is. But it's, I think also because patients want that label, like you've talked about earlier, yes. right? So they want that yeah. label. And, and here it is, we have a name and they hold on to that label for the rest of their lives. And they'll see somebody else like three months, three years from now and say, oh, but I have piriformis syndrome that Isabel told <laughs> sure me I had. I'm like, oh, great. Isabel, I wanted to ask you, do you struggle with, because we're, we're it's beat into us so much, choosing wisely, don't get imaging. Uh, you know, most of the patients don't need imaging. Oh, do yeah. you, do you feel like, do you always feel nervous you're missing things or you're not imaging enough? Is that, do you, do you share oh, that? Oh, everybody gets an MRI the first visit, 10 <laughs> minutes in, everybody, just MRI. Oh, no, no, God, no, of course not. No, God. I, uh, yes, I, I have that. Was that the stand-in for, for, for Paul given the deliberately <laughs> wrong answer? Or, yes. or no, that's, that's you, isn't it, Matt? <laughs> It sort of is, right? No, I. Everybody gets the MRI. No, of course not. But I, actually, I do fear it, right? And the patient's like, but, but there always, there's always like that once quasi red flag. Let's call it a pink flag. I'm like, oh, maybe I should get that X-ray, <laughs> um, because of of this, said that, or the, because of the neuropathy or radiculopathy or whatnot. So I, I do feel that the patients struggle when I tell them no, and I. But the rapport that you said earlier does help. But also, there is a place. There's a time for imaging. Mm -hmm. Tell us if and when. Uh, I will. I will get to that in just a moment. There's oh. one thing I wanted to add on the last topic, if that's if that's okay. Oh, sure. <laughs> because sure. because you're completely right that um, there's actually qualitative research on this that patients really want a diagnosis and they want information on prognosis and they want information on what exactly should I do with this condition. And clinicians, we're all trained to diagnose things and deliver very specific diagnoses. And, and it kind of raises the question of the almost philosophical question, what is the purpose of a diagnostic label? And, and ideally, a diagnosis should guide a diagnosis 
specific management strategy. And that management strategy should be shown to result in better outcomes compared to alternative management strategies, right? But if two diagnoses are going to be managed similarly, again, there's not a ton of utility in spending time differentiating between them. And in the world of back pain, the the further confounding issue is that it's really difficult for us to even accurately identify and differentiate these as causes of back pain. Just because, as you mentioned, so many patients who are asymptomatic have some of these quote-unquote abnormalities, more properly termed age-related changes on their on their imaging that makes it really difficult. And so the way we talk about this with patients is so critically important. And there's actually quite a lot of research on this that's that's super interesting. I just want to describe one recent paper that was published in, in May of, of 2022 by um, uh, a researcher named Mary O'Keefe. They took 1,300 uh, uh, patients and basically randomized them to receive different kinds of diagnoses relating to back pain and tried to assess the impact of delivering that diagnosis on what they uh, expected next, basically. So they, they randomized patients to either receive the diagnosis, an episode of back pain, a lumbar sp- uh, sprain or nonspecific low back pain. And they found that those diagnoses reduced patients' perception of the need for imaging, surgery, or a second opinion. Whereas when patients were given the diagnostic labels arthritis or disc bulge or degeneration, that increased the perception of need for imaging, surgery, or second opinion, and also it, uh, resulted in them perceiving that their back pain was more serious. And uh, when patients got the kind of more generic, vague kind of diagnoses, they had better expectations for recovery compared to when they were given a more specific. And this has been replicated in other areas of musculoskeletal medicine relating to shoulder pain and hip pain and knee arthritis and things like that. And so giving an unnecessarily specific diagnosis will shift preferences and expectations for management. And this has also been shown among clinicians, like even clinicians, when they read radiology reports that have like multi-level degenerative disc disease and things, they perceive the condition as more serious. They're more likely to recommend invasive interventions and things like that compared to they've done randomized trials where they literally reworded the radiology report to basically say, these are common expected age-related changes. And clinicians kind of downgraded their assessment of the severity of the condition, were less likely to recommend invasive, aggressive treatments, and patients were more optimistic about their prognosis and likelihood for recovery and were less likely to pursue all these other alternative things. So you're saying radiology is to blame for... Always. For, for all this. <laughs> Always. Uh, we're going to need but that just study. think about that when you're... Uh, yes, I'm happy to give you all of that. I got piles of it. <laughs> but the way we talk about this with patients is so critically important. And it, it just, it, it kind of reflects... Uh, one of my favorite papers that I talk about with my residents and students is a JAMA editorial called The Iatric- Iatrogenic Potential of the Physician's Words. And it basically just tries to illustrate how much power you have when you're giving patients this information and advice and these specific labels and how much it can shift their long-term outcomes um, uh, for the worse or potentially for the better if you kind of if you know what you're doing. So that was my like lengthy sh- aside spiel. I'm happy to talk about imaging now. <laughs> we should bring this back to the case because this our guy we gave, Mr. Lumbago, Lumbago, he's 44, hypertension, obesity, four days of back pain, sits a lot at a computer working from home and recently has done some more heavy lifting. Mm -hmm. So in the the context of imaging, how might you talk to it about a patient like this? And then maybe we can switch it and give them a red flag. And how would you talk about in that case? Yeah. Yeah. So kind of first assessing his thoughts on things, and hopefully that would have come up in the course of the history, getting a sense of what he thinks could be going on. And then just pointing out that it's very common for things to hurt when you do more than you're used to or more than you're ready for. And that pain could manifest anywhere with any sort of activity. you got weekend warriors who go out and, and pick up some form of exercise or start doing a bunch of yard work or whatever the case is. 
yeah, things things get sore. But I think that people in general in society, the way we think about the back as a more disabling thing, more serious thing, people take back pain more seriously than they might. Like if he had some knee pain after doing a bunch of kneeling and gardening when he doesn't do it before, he might not come in. But a lot of patients with back issues, they assume that it is more serious in general. That's 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 super common. And so get, getting, um, getting his assessment or his understanding of things and seeing how I can mold that to be more consistent with kind of the best evidence that we have, that this is unlikely to be something serious, that this is almost normal and expected in the course of him, you know, his, his activity, and then discussing that it is very good prognosis, very likely to improve on its own and finding ways that we can try to keep him active and also spinning it potentially into the more active we can keep you, the less likely this is to recur in the future. And we'll also enjoy a bunch of side benefits from that relating to his hypertension, to his obesity. We can improve his health status in so many other ways, in addition to reducing the risk of him re-experiencing this very unpleasant, uh, but ultimately benign kind of episode that he's having right now. What if he, you know, what if he said that uh, you, you examined him, his ankle, ankle reflexes is out, he seems to, you know, not be moving that leg as well. What imaging might you go for? Or are there more subtle reasons you might get imaging? Yeah. Interpreting ankle reflexes, of course, can be tricky in, in older patients, but uh, we know he's not he's not very old either. So that's something that should be considered in this Even in, <laughs> in younger patients, if you're me, yeah. I, I need to work on it. I need be- probably a better reflex habit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so similar to the history, similar to the exam, when it comes to deciding about imaging, it's when we have suspicion for serious underlying systemic disease or an indication for surgical consultation. Uh, that's my broken record for these for these few questions, as I said. And so the imaging modality of choice um, is going to depend on the indication, the setting, what resources you have available. If the clinical context was a little different, you were worried more about a fracture, for example, a compression fracture or something like that, it's, it's pretty reasonable a lot of times to start with a plain film in that situation, plain x-ray. Uh, but for, for the vast majority of the remaining indications to pursue imaging, MRI is going to end up being the test of choice for, for most of them. Um, the issue is that, of course, MRI is not always feasible in all patients, whether in terms of access or if they have hardware devices that may not be MRI compatible, et cetera. In which case, kind of plus minus case by case basis, whether CT may be acceptable if it's, you know, because it may be a less sensitive alternative. And that's just a situation where I, even in, you know, in practice, will just call a radiologist and be like, here's what I'm thinking, here's what I'm worried about, help me decide the best t- uh, test to do this. Of course, the caveat there is this requires you to have a specific clinical suspicion or specific clinical question, not a back pain rule out everything kind of a kind of a image imaging order, right? So ideally, that. you have a clinical suspicion that you have formulated for something relatively specific through the course of your history, your exam, things like that, and then communicating with your radiologist if you're in a situation where an MRI is you know not feasible or accessible or whatever the case is. Um, as, as we have alluded to, of course, the, on oftentimes the more important discussion around imaging is whether to do it at all. Um, and most clinicians are not doing great with that. Rates of imaging are continuing to, to increase in practice. Um, and then how those imaging results are c- discussed with the patient is also a lot more important than it's given credit for. I mean, ultimately, if I've not made this clear so far, I think that actually diagnosing and managing the more specific causes of, of back pain is oftentimes quite a bit simpler of an affair compared to managing more complex, uh, 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 nonspecific back pain cases. But yeah, that's kind of the general approach to imaging. One thing that I noticed uh, as I was reading, and and I I guess maybe this is just a gap in my knowledge, or I just never encountered anyone who practiced this way, the use of plain films with an ESR CRP, if you're suspecting possible cancer or infection, instead of an MRI, you know, that 
that's not something I had heard of, but I saw, you know, up to date had it. Uh, I think the annals in the clinic article had it. And I was, I was surprised at that. Is that something that you, you've heard of, you've seen, you've done? I also am surprised by this. Um, it's not typical. It it's, comes down to like a question of sensitivity, I think. Okay. And oftentimes patients with malignancy, their inflammatory markers are going to be elevated, of course. Right. I suppose if their inflammatory markers were completely undetectable and you had a completely plain x-ray, then it comes down to what was your real pretest probability from the history? Are you still concerned enough to go further? And and if that's the case, maybe, I mean, in practice for me, um, I, I typically will, that would not be my um, my typical approach just because I'm concerned enough from a sensitivity standpoint. Yeah. I, I had not done it before. I mean, like you said, uh, if I'm, if I'm concerned for a flat fracture, sometimes mm-hmm. I might get an x-ray cause I know I can do it quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, maybe if it's a patient with like history of prostate cancer or something, it might start with an x-ray, but if I'm still suspicious, I, I might jump to an MRI, but the ex- yeah. sometimes you can just get an x-ray like the next day or that same day. It's so convenient too. um, Yeah. The probabilities are really important. And then thinking about like, how much are you willing to miss in this kind of situation? If there's a history of cancer, I mean, that's a tough one. So. Right. Actually, one of the things I struggled with was still doing the MRI when this x-ray already confirmed a compression fracture in the patient with osteoporosis. Like, why do I still need the MRI? And, and of course, the it would ultimately just be it. relating to intervention. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If it informs intervention, but if it's yeah. not, if it's not going to be a non, you know, non-operative, non-interventional thing, then that's a good point. You might not need it. Yeah. So the take-home point from this discussion for imaging is, it's it's not always the wrong answer. Okay, there are some cases <laughs> where you're going to want to get imaging, and uh, but you you we've we've spent a lot of time talking about the history, the exam, yeah. like what might point you towards that. Uh, yeah. With this case here, I think it would be reasonable to just move on to management uh, for, mm-hmm. for this guy because we gave you a low-risk case. Yeah. The suspicion of serious disease and indication for surgical evaluation are the main things. But even if you get imaging, let's say that you gave in and you got some imaging that wasn't, strictly speaking, indicated, I think then the way that you can still do best by your patient is be exceptionally cautious with how you communicate the results to the person, right? Because if it ultimately ends up being something benign, but it finds all these kind of like common age-related abnormalities or something, and you deliver it to the patient with all sorts of scary biomedical jargon and things like that, you can still do harm (laughs) from that standpoint. So there are ways to even spin the results of potentially inappropriate imaging to minimize the risk of harm to the patient and the way you communicate it to them. I've seen in practice for this acute back pain. Uh, sometimes patients get admitted to the hospital for this. Like it's just refractory. They've been at home. They've been doing acetaminophen and SEDS. It's just not working. And I've seen all sorts of back pain cocktails. I'm going to tell you what I've seen in, in Austin. I'd love for you to tell me if you think any of this is valid and what you would do. But uh, certainly for the patient being admitted to the hospital, they were getting scheduled acetaminophen, NSAIDs, muscle relaxants, in some cases, the even even the uh, f- spine surgeons were recommending prednisone, like steroids, and then uh, opioids. I mean, if they're getting admitted to the hospital because none of the other stuff worked, I feel like it's reasonable to give them at least one or two doses of opioids and then try to get the other stuff built up and kind of knocked down. What do you think about that? Do you have a back pain cocktail? Maybe we're coining that term. I don't know. I, but it sounds, we have a migraine cocktail. Why not a back Why pain not this cocktail? One, yeah. I think, yeah, I think the preface to this should be that all of the best kind of evidence-based guidelines we have are um, recommend that the initial management of acute it be it a nonspecific low back pain case, should actually be non-pharmacologic in nature, that not all patients who come in with back pain to the clinic should automatically be prescribed medication. Um, 
a fair amount of them will do fine without it. Um, some will do, will will benefit from some very mild medications, like some of the ones that you described. As you said, patients getting admitted to the hospital, I've been on the receiving end of that, on the inpatient setting. That's a whole different ballgame. That is a very tiny minority of cases. And that's a situation where you're going to be doing all sorts of stuff because this is a that's a very, very challenging situation. And the odds are very likely that there is a substantial amount of concomitant psychosocial stuff that has probably been unaddressed in, in many of those situations. And that is in no way suggesting that, you know, the, the, the way that people take this incorrectly is that that's stating that, oh, the pain is all in their head or they're crazy or something like that, which is not at all what people are saying. But there are major psychosocial influences on things like pain intensity, uh, uh, the the resulting disability that people experience from it and, and things like that. So I think that when you're in that situation, um, throwing all the drugs at people is, is one thing that you can do in the inpatient setting. And I think that many of the things you described are reasonable. I would still probably not do steroids in, in those patients. Um, I'm exceptional. I'm extremely skeptical that they would provide benefit and they increase all sorts of risks of sepsis, VTE, fractures, things like that. Of course, if it's short-term, people will downplay that. I just don't see the benefit of those and, things. Yeah. I've never seen any positive, like no. any positive tr study of this. Yeah. I've had multiple patients put on them. Even anecdotally, it doesn't yeah. seem to help. It will, it will worsen sleep. It will do all sorts of other metabolic havoc to them. It's just things that are generally unhelpful. So I would skip the steroids, but acetaminophen, NSAIDs, fine. If somebody's requiring hospital admission, they're going to end up getting opioids. Yes. Any other, you know, multimodal, uh, uh, relatively benign therapy or topical things that, that make patients feel better. Um, and preferably the goal of pharmacologic management to the extent that it is being used is to facilitate movement and physical activity. Uh -huh. I think that that is also understated and under, you, you know, you, the way that it is framed to patients. So, I mean, if like for our patient who's coming into clinic, I think that the most important thing is know, what's knowing your natural history of this condition helps you set appropriate expectations when counseling patients. What does that, that mean? That the prognosis is generally pretty favorable. The overwhelming majority of people experience substantial reductions in pain intensity within four to six weeks, almost regardless of what you do, as long as you don't make it worse, like by lying, lying in bed the whole time. There's a fair amount of variability in people's outcomes. A fair amount of people are going to experience bumps in the road, ups and downs, recurrence um, over the course of the subsequent you know, year or so, about a third tend to experience recurrence. But knowing this natural history can be really helpful to set expectations for people. And this generally positive prognosis with time also extends, again, to the situation I mentioned earlier, where there's back pain with leg pain, again, in the absence of motor weakness, okay. which is managed kind of similarly. Um, with patients who have things like herniated discs, even who have radiographic findings of, you know, uh, 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 like a bulge, radiculopathy, um, there is a substantial amount of data showing that these heal on their own over the course of weeks to months. There is uh, evidence of imaging confirmed reabsorption of these things. And this is often news to patients. <laughs> They had no idea. A lot of people assume that if I had a herniated disc, that's it. My back's done. It's a death sentence, things like that. And, and giving this information can be really helpful to set positive expectations um, that these things can improve and tend to improve on their own with time as long as you're able to kind of stay active along the way. This is one of the few times I commiserate with patients because I did have back pain mm -hmm. in residency. I had a herniated disc. I was worried I had cancer probably because mm -hmm. I'm in medicine. Yep. And, uh, and, and then like, yeah, it got better. It's like, it's, it's, it's better. And so uh, like I, when I was reading that, I was like, yeah, I, that my experience, it's good to know <laughs> that I'm not just like a freak that has like a herniated disc that I like, it was going to hurt forever. But no one told me that when I yeah. was in the course of my recovery, I feel like it would have helped if they had told me that. 
having that knowledge to set expectations is, is super useful. And additionally, because again, so many people assume that if something hurts, that there's going to be something identifiable that can be fixed to make it go away. But rather it's that, hey, there are so many things that can impact pain all these biological, psychosocial variables, all these, there's all these variables that can impact pain. And we have ways that can help your pain improve. Even if the imaging findings don't change, we have ways of improving your pain. It's like that, if, if it was all down to that thing, then man, your only option is going to be surgery or something, but it's good news. We don't have to pursue that. We have all these things that we can work on to, to make things better, which is often helpful for patients to hear. And um, so I, going back to this cocktail of, the cocktail is one movement, uh, you know, keep moving. But, and the reason we mm-hmm. do the medication, like you said earlier, is to enable the movement, mm-hmm. anti-inflammatories, uh, uh, talon, um, acetaminophen. Can you comment on muscle relaxers? Cause that's a popular one that gets asked yeah. about. We use it to, so what are your thoughts on yeah, that? Yeah, let's do, let, let's do meds. So the, the evidence for acetaminophen is actually not great, but of course that has never stopped yeah. anybody from prescribing acetaminophen for anything. Uh, so I, I relent that that's, <laughs> that that's one that's, that's going to happen. Um, NSAIDs can be helpful, particularly on, you know, for the, for the acute back pain presentation. Um, there are of course some patients who, in whom it may be riskier to take mm-hmm. NSAIDs. Um, a lot of the, the kidney risks, there's a surprising amount of controversy in that realm. Even I'm sure, you know, I, I remember hearing, uh, Dr. Toff talk about that in certain situations where it's actually probably fine, maybe even preferable to give some NSAIDs to people with a bit of impaired kidney function rather than sticking them on long-term opioids. Um, And then uh, when it comes to muscle relaxers, so this, I I really don't like that term and I don't tend to use it, um, particularly (laughs) when I'm particularly, particularly when, well, yeah, it is very clearly a misnomer. They're just tranquilizers (laughs) more than anything else, honestly. Uh, You know, if we're actually talking true muscle relaxers, you're talking about, you know, things that are used for induction and intubation and things like that. So it's a different, different category. But um, the common ones that are used are things like cyclobenzaprine. Uh, is is quite common. Tizanidine is another one that's quite quite common, um, and and there is evidence for these uh, having a pretty significant reduction in pain intensity in the very short term in in acute low back pain. Um, Long term, they sh- should not be used on an ongoing basis for sure. Um, the my typical source of concern for these is their their adverse effects. Um, so cyclobenzaprine structurally is basically a TCA. It's almost identical to a TCA, uh, a tricyclic uh, um, and antidepressant, which we know are "quote unquote" dirty drugs. They hit a bunch of receptors. They have sedating effects, the orthostasis, the um, cardiac things, et cetera, et cetera. So that's that's one source of of concern. Um, Tizanidine is another one, um, and that one I have seen at this point a handful of cases of profound, very difficult to manage hypotension. <laughs> In patients who have received oh, wow. tizanidine, one 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 of whom uh, this was about six months ago, who actually had to go to the ICU and was put on vasopressors for refractory, basically hypotension. Um, he was not septic; he didn't have anything else going on, uh, and this was in an inpatient setting, perioperatively, that he had received some some tizanidine. And there are some drug drug interactions. So patients who are on tizanidine, um, for example, I think there's a pretty dangerous side of uh, drug drug interaction with uh, fluoroquinolone antibiotics, um, and there's there's a handful of other ones. So I'm quite cautious if I'm going to use these, if somebody. If I have a, you know, maybe our common middle-aged to older multi-morbid patient, polypharmacy on a bunch of medicines, I'm going to be pretty reluctant to use these kind of things because, I mean, you know the odds of uh, drug-drug interactions, how quickly those pile up once patients are on yeah. more than more and than drug two, two medicines. Exactly. Um, 
And so those, um, they can be helpful in the acute short term for reducing pain intensity. But again, I'm setting expectations that if we're using these, it is to facilitate movement and probably, you know, the sedating effects to facilitate sleep because sleep is super important when it comes to the recovery from, from these kind of things and improving pain intensity. But man, I have a hard time with patients who are on a bunch of medicines and there's likelihood of interaction and they're, you know, they're, they're, they're on a couple other antihypertensives and things like that, that, you know, before I know it, this patient's going to have uh, syncope and end up in the ER and admitted for a fracture or a fall or something something else like that. So, right. so that's, that's the muscle relaxer question. There, there are a few other medicines that are commonly used. So SNRIs, particularly duloxetine, um, has some evidence that we're all taught this kind of potential benefit for back pain in, in medical school has some, some benefit. Um, it's much smaller than we we're taught. I think the, I think some of the data I saw was like a, a 0.5 of a point on a one to 10 scale. So, so relatively small. Um, anticonvulsants, uh, gabapentinoids, um, are wildly overprescribed for back pain, including radicular pain. And there's not good evidence that they tend to benefit in many of those situations, unfortunately. Um, and then opioids, we know that, um, generally not great to initiate and to continue long-term, um, various risks, um, adverse effects and the risk of opioid induced hyperalgesia, actually worsening pain states long-term, the longer patients are on opioids. And so I think that if we wanted to summarize this or give clinicians a handy tool, both for their own decision-making and to walk through this with patients, um, the Canadian, I think it's the Canadian Family Medicine Association or something like that, they have a group called the Peer Group, and they do very solid evidence-based assessments. And they came out with a chronic pain guideline last year that was fantastic. And they also paired it with a clinician-friendly resource with a very easy-to-remember website. It is literally just pain-calculator.com. So if you go to pain-calculator.com, they have uh, basically options that you can select among between osteoarthritis and low back pain. And it shows you various interventions and it shows you basically like the little um, kind of NNT type figures of like 100 patients with this condition, how many are going to benefit from this, how many are not going to benefit, and how many would get better with control anyway. And so um, uh, that can be helpful when having these kind of shared decision-making conversations in which we're talking about what are you know risks and benefits and alternatives to these things, how much can we expect to benefit. I also try to set goals of like, if we're going to use this, what are we going to use it for? And then setting a goal for when is our goal going to be to try to come off of these medications, um, which is almost something that is very rarely <laughs> ever done. It's just kind of assumed that, hey, just take it as long as you need it. And it's like, well, the goal is that we can get you moving, get you back to your life, and you won't need this, you know, indefinitely to pile on top of all your other medicines if you have a bunch of these other medical conditions. And Austin, I just wanted to clarify that SNRI, that's generally like uh, duloxetine, that, that would be generally considered for a, once it becomes a chronic pain, not in the acute acute phase of it, right? Yes, the yes, other, correct. That would not be an upfront about, sort of things. Yeah, exactly. Right. The others mm -hmm. we talked about would be more considered in the acute phase. And you mentioned movement a couple times. What sort of movement instructions are you giving the patient? Are you, are you going to give them a handout on exercises to do, mm -hmm. like McKenzie back pain exercises or something like that in the, in the acute term? And then in the long term, if it becomes a chronic pain, like what sort of movement instructions are you giving? Yeah, this is, I think, one of the most probably... The, the, one of the most important takeaways for folks, um, a only a, I think there's some evidence that only about 20% of patients who present to clinics with back pain are actually given education and advice on what to do about it, like self-management strategies, which is horrifically bad, given the burden of disease worldwide. And then when when in the in the context of chronic back pain, I saw some data that about 50 to 60% of patients are not prescribed physical activity for chronic back pain stuff, be it physical therapy or like, you know, exercise or just like movement in general. Which Our is audience is going to do really better. Bad. We're going to, we're going to do better. I believe in them. 
<laughs> so really, really important. I think some other important things to understand is that there are no specific exercises that have been shown to be superior for back pain related outcomes. So there is not a specific fancy exercise modality or tool or movement or stretch or any of those kind of things that are that are decidedly superior to others. Which is great news, because if that was the case, then we would have to force everybody into this one box, right? That it is not the case suggests that we have all sorts of options. And it comes much more down to the person's individual preferences, their limitations, their goals, their abilities, their access, if there's a, you know equipment required or something like that, um, and then their adherence and enjoyment. And so ultimately, the way I approach this is, goes back to my history, trying to get a sense of what is their usual physical activity habit? Um, and that can, obviously, there's a wide range of answers that you're going to get from I wake up and I watch TV all day and I might walk to the kitchen and back, um, which is one end of the spectrum, um, all the way to I'm a rabid exerciser and their back pain may actually be related to overdosing <laughs> on their training or something like that. And you actually have to deliberately back them off. So there's a whole spectrum in between. But getting a sense of what their usual habits are is a good jumping off point to initiate the kind of standard primary care motivational interviewing type conversation that people ought to be better at in a lot of situations, but are oftentimes not super comfortable with. Even the clinician may not have a history of exercise themselves, so they may not feel comfortable talking about this. And so there are tools out there. There are uh, physical activity prescriptions that can be used. It's just like a form that gives you boxes that you can fill out to, uh, to fill out a prescription, almost like a medication. And those can be helpful for folks who are maybe not accustomed to routinely prescribing uh, physical activity or exercise. Um, but whatever movement I can negotiate a shared plan with the patient. It could be as simple as getting up and walking. It can be, you know, chair sit to stands a couple times a day, or it might be a proper exercise. They might prefer going to a pool or, you know, hopping on a treadmill or going to a gym or something like that. And there's, there's a whole spectrum. So negotiating that shared plan with the person can be super uh, important. And there are other evidence-based behavioral change strategies that can be employed in this situation. So is there social support that can be leveraged? Can somebody else do this with the person? Setting some kind of, some kind of a goal together. Um, in terms of the amount or the frequency or whatever the case is, is another strategy that can be used. Um, physical activity trackers or like smartphone apps or the kind of Fitbit type watches and things like that. In general, I don't love those things for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, like the incidental, you know, doc, I, my watch told me I had, you know, an abnormal heartbeat or something like that. But separate from that, <laughs> there is some evidence that these things can increase, increase the amount of physical activity that, that people are doing. It's not a, you know, earth shattering amount, but again, most of our patients, um, a lot of the time are starting from a very low level and any amount can help. So there are multiple ways that we can get people moving, but ultimately it's a shared kind of back and forth negotiation, motivational interviewing behavior change process with the, with the person, because, you know, with their, maybe they've had a history of back pain episodes in the past and they're like learned behavioral responses. Oh, I just go and lay in bed or something. That's a tough, you have to break that cycle if you want to improve their outcomes and fortify them against recurrences in the future. Because exercise is one of the few interventions that can also reduce the risk of recurrence uh, or, and or progression to chronic pain from a secondary prevention standpoint as well. It sounds so it sounds like, you know, trying to get them tell them to move around as they can and then you're we're assessing what exercise prescription might they be able to to actually adhere to or what might they be game for, what might they be able to safely do. And yeah. uh and, and you you were saying um the physical activity prescription uh, I, I, I will have to try to look for those and link to them, but you're saying there's actual like printable, yeah. printable yeah. ones that you exactly. can, oh, that's, yes. that's great. Yeah. Yeah. I often try to tie it to something that's important to the person. 
Uh, and so a common question that I might ask, particularly for somebody who has a chronic pain kind of issue, a lot of times they're, uh, you know, frustrated and they might be coming in because there are things that they want to be able to do that they can't. And so it might, I might ask a question like, what would you like to be able to do the most? And if they feel limited in their ability to accomplish that, you know, again, I, I was, I, as I mentioned in my bio, I have a fair amount of like physical activity, exercise training history kind of thing. So I can think of ideas of how to guide somebody towards that goal kind of on the spot, which can be challenging if, if you don't have that kind of experience or background. But I try to figure out what is the person's goal? What do they really want to be able to do? And, and I try to spin it towards that direction because a lot of times it's just that if you just ask them like what's their goal it's going to be i want zero pain and unfortunately like i wish it were not the case but the the reality is we that is probably an unrealistic goal for a certain fraction of people right so tying it to something that's important to them and trying to figure out a shared plan with a kind of a progression method or goal to get them from where they are now to at least closer because any amount of increase in functional ability is is a win from my standpoint we covered this i, I can't remember the name of the trial it was something clever, but it was this shoulder pain where they, they randomized people to either get an injection or to go for physical therapy. And even if they just got one like quality session of physical therapy, it seemed to help people. So a lot of patients, when you say physical therapy, they're like, oh, I'm going to have to go twice a week for six mm -hmm. weeks. I'm going to have mm -hmm. to take time off work. I, I've started to say to patients, if just go once or twice and just like get some exercise, especially if it's someone who doesn't like know what to do they're like you're at least going to learn some things that you can do safely uh, so i've started to leverage that as someone that's not as adept at exercise prescription as you are uh austin but that, yeah uh, uh, isabel do you have any workarounds yeah well i actually also use that physical therapy idea with my patients who are physically active like I'll, I'll just go to the gym i go to the gym all the time i'm working out and i exercise regularly i know how to use these my weights and my the weights at, at the at the gym and like that's actually why we're here because you maybe have been you've had a, maybe your technique has been off and maybe that's why you ended up with this with this injury so even with patients who are very physically active and have a lot of confidence i encourage them to do physical therapy same thing as you uh, want to like give me just one or two sessions. You don't need a whole lot just to learn the technique from someone who has a degree in this too. So you can improve on this and from there grow and get stronger from here on out and prevent further injury. All right, Austin, we're going to, we're going to advance time forward a little bit here. Let's say we gave our back pain cocktail uh, and we gave, we, we did a good job. We did our best effort, but unfortunately it's been some time. We, we haven't seen him for a year, but Mr. Lumbago, he's back. He's been seeing a chiropractor. The chiropractor said, yeah, you, your, your spine's out of alignment. Um, he's, you know, he's been going to them. It helps a little bit, but he has good and bad days. Recently, he feels like it's starting to, you know, flare up again. So he's looking for some other options. Um, at some point along the line, he, he had some imaging that, that really was just, you know, age related changes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So how do you talk to somebody once it's progressed to this chronic part point, you know, as you said, there's the biomedical portion, there's the, the, the psychosocial portion of this. He's had the, he's had the imaging. So we know there's some degenerative changes and things, but nothing major that needs a mm -hmm. surgery. Yeah. Um, so, or, or specific enough to treat. So how do you talk about this? Yeah, this is where things get a lot trickier. I mean, when patients come in with a long history of persisting low back pain, they also come in with a lot more experience, a lot more beliefs and ideas that they've heard from people and certain expectations and things like that. So that's honestly where I start. I mean, the assessment is 
to some extent similar in the acute back pain setting. I'm trying to get to know the person's story and where they're coming from and what they're bringing with them to the visit. So this guy's coming back a year later. I'm kind of curious what brought him back now. Is there something that he's trying to do that he can't? Is the pain intensifying? Is he just sick of it? Is he can't sleep? Or, or, or what exactly is, is, is uh, kind of precipitating this, this visit now? Because again, eliciting this understanding, these expectations, these beliefs give you kind of the, the, the space that you're going to start from as far as doing your best to maybe correct some things that may be incorrect. So certain patients might feel like maybe they feel like they're not safe to move as long as they have pain, which is a major one. And that's one that I challenge right away. <laughs> the, the belief that you have to be 100% pain-free to move is a, is a, is a major you know, a, a kind of limiter for folks. Rather, I want them to help to understand that if they have some discomfort with activity, it's not doesn't mean that they're actively damaging themselves. I want them to trust their back rather than to feel like they have to protect their back kind of at all costs, right? So, so getting this uh, information from the person and the backstory, what's happened in the past year, things like that, uh, can be really helpful as a jumping off point for further discussion because this is not something that's going to be solved in one visit, probably not in multiple visits, certainly not by various invasive procedures and, and and surgeries and things like that for the vast majority of cases. And so it might be more a matter of getting a sense of where are the patient's expectations for recovery and goals and what is realistic for them and finding a way to, to work towards that. So we may be stuck with current limitations of, of modern medicine as it stands right now in working towards a functional goal rather than saying, we're going to work towards zero out of 10 pain. Unfortunately, that may be a, a limitation that we have in, in many cases. And so in general, I'm always trying to prioritize active management strategies and self-management strategies, putting the patient kind of in control, giving them some self-efficacy and autonomy over the process and getting them moving over passive strategies, things like medications or like avoiding activities or things that are done to the person, like chiropractic. Uh, uh, manipulation, for example, I will say, and as as you mentioned, um, you know, off offline, that uh, the ACP guidelines um, allow for a lot of these things, or suggest that they may be reasonable to try, and that includes chiropractic, you know, man, uh, spinal manipulative therapy and things like acupuncture, that. Acupuncture, Tai Chi, yoga. Yeah, no, I guess and, acupuncture or chiropractor are <laughs> passive. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they are. But reading the guidelines, you see, it's like, oh, we can just throw anything at the wall and see what, <laughs> what helps right. this person, <laughs> which tells you how difficult of a problem this is, right? And and I think that you know, if 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 folks are coming and saying that they're trying this thing and it's helping them, then who am I to say otherwise? Um, but for me to go out of my way and to recommend them, it it involves a bit more of a detailed conversation. Uh, part of the issue with a lot of these interventions, particularly when they're done by other folks, be it a chiropractor or an acupuncturist or a dry needler or any of those things is that they often have to pair their intervention with a narrative or a story or an explanation for why they're doing what they're doing or how it works. And that can sometimes conflict with you know accurate evidence-based information and things like that. Like you said, he was told he's coming in because his back is out of alignment. That is pseudoscience, <laughs> honestly, the overwhelming majority of the time. Um, especially to the extent that somebody can like put it back into alignment, quote unquote, with their hands. Honestly, not ever validated, demonstrated, proven. It's it's not real. Um, that is not to say that any pain relief that they may get from it is not real. That can certainly be, you know, a real thing that they might experience. And the same with with uh, you know needling type interventions. Now, is it the case that most of the RCTs on this that are done in the Western world um, find that you can put needles almost anywhere? That real needling versus sham needling gets the same outcome? Yes, <laughs> that is the case. Uh, and so that makes for a tricky conversation with folks. Again, if they say, hey, I did this and it made me feel better, cool. Um, but again, if, if they're being delivered messages that give them the idea that their spine is fragile or unsafe to move or you know something like that, that's, that's a problem. And so that's kind of where a lot of these conversations can get really tricky 
again, when it comes to baggage, like like we said at the at the beginning. How do you talk to them about mood, stress, sleep, how the importance of that? Yeah. So so I think that uh, when you go down the, the road of assessing somebody from a mental health standpoint, it can be tricky not to convey the idea that um, you're suggesting that the pain is all in their head or that they're crazy or something like that. And, and so I kind of at the outset will say that, hey, we know it's very clear that uh, pain, particularly when it's intense and disabling and, and, and sort of like the, the pain that you're experiencing, it can affect your mood. And we actually know the other way is the case too, that your mood can also affect pain and things like that. So I want to get to know a sense of where you're at with that. How are you doing and, and kind of standard, you know, mental health screening that any primary care clinician should be comfortable with. And then also open-ended, tell me about your sleep. How is this impacting your sleep? And, and pain can impact sleep and sleep can impact pain, same way. And so if there's some kind of untreated sleep disorder, if there's, you know, addressing basic kind of standard primary care sleep hygiene stuff, or if they have risk for sleep apnea, our original guy had obesity and hypertension. So, you know, maybe um, things like that, that can also impact their, their outcome. So as we've said, attacking this from as many different angles as possible um, is is kind of the, the the goal, and all of it is to facilitate uh, activity and uh, and and good functional outcome for people. Now, some of our patients have they come in with the things that they can control. Like I've tried new shoes, I've tried this this uh, back belt brace thing. Mm-hmm. What's your stance on that? Because I, I want to give them, I want to empower them because they're doing they're taking steps. They really want to, but yeah. sometimes. They might, they might be misguided. So how do you approach that? Yeah, I do not rain on people's parade if they're trying things. Okay. <laughs> I think the, the bottom line from an evidence standpoint is that those things do not typically help um, or they don't reduce the risk of progression of chronic pain. Um, from the acute back pain standpoint, I do not on my own initiate a conversation where I'm recommending somebody use a back belt or a brace or shoes or insoles or inserts or something like that. There's not good evidence for any of that stuff impacting outcomes when it comes to this. People can experiment with whatever they'd like if they have the disposable income and they want to do it. But if they ask my opinion, I would say that's probably not where I would put my effort and energy and money and resources and things like that. I would be recommending more of the things that we have really best evidence for, um, which has more to do with the education, advice, reframing their beliefs and expectations, getting them moving, active, uh, uh, doing things that they enjoy, engaging socially, sleeping, general health, all that good stuff is where I'd be putting my my emphasis. But it's unfortunate. There are so many myths and like inaccurate media messages out there about this stuff. People have beliefs about, you know, posture and 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 ergonomics and, and a lot of stuff that is actually way less well supported than, than we tend to think. Same goes for braces and shoes and all these other kind of devices as well, unfortunately. I wish more of these things worked, but. <laughs> so what about topical like heat, ice, um, any any sort of topical therapies, lidocaine patches, topical NSAIDs, what about those things? Yeah, so <clears throat> heat and cold, I truly do not have a strong opinion on. I think that if it, there's obviously a, almost no risk unless you burn yourself. <laughs> or, or, <laughs> Which so, you can do with the cold uh, compress too, right? You, so. You can, you can, yeah, you can, as long as you don't go to the temperature extremes. If it, don't if put it makes dry you feel ice good. directly on your skin. <laughs> exactly. But again, I'm, I'm discussing this with the patient through the lens of why are we doing this? And ultimately it is, is this going to help us get you moving? Is this going to help us get you moving? Is this going to help us get you moving? Rather yeah. than we're just going to numb the pain, you know, which is not the way, <laughs> not the way we go. Here. So those, those are fine. If you want to do those, that that's great. Go for it. Um, the medicated things, I don't think we have a ton of great evidence for you know, things like NSAID, topical NSAIDs, diclofenac gel, I'm all about those things for like NeoA and things like that. But I don't tend to go to those very often for spinal yeah. pain or back pain. It's, it seems like it's too far to penetrate or too much tissue. 
tissue there. I, I yeah. usually use it on smaller joints. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I bet that you could give placebo gel and you get the same effect that you got from an NSAID gel if you put it on there just because people are doing something yeah. to that area. It may, it may help. And the same with the lidocaine. Tends to not be super, super helpful overall. Isabel, have you seen anyone... Uh, cannabinoids, CBD oil, uh, medical cannabis or non-medical cannabis. What, have you seen any of that? The, especially the CBD oil, the topical things, because in the cash, like where I work, we, we don't have, uh, we don't have cannabis readily available, uh, medically, medically approved yet. But, um, but the CBD oils, uh, like I, I did oil versus gel versus like, I don't know, they are always trying different ones and they buy them online and I don't know, I don't know what's regulated. What's the right dose apply three times. So <laughs> please tell me what I can tell. How can I help them? Because again, there, I want to commend them for trying. So yeah. what can I help oh them? Boy, with? If there's a wild West, <laughs> this is, this is, this is still it. Right. So, so I think, you know, from an evidence standpoint, there is not a ton to, to lean on here. Um, there are a couple like systematic reviews and meta-analyses. And then you look and it's like, Oh, of four trials and two of them were in spinal cord injury patients. And it's like, okay, how do I generalize this to my, and then the other ones are all on different formulations and types of CBD. So I, Bottom line, don't know. I don't know that anybody like really knows or can give a very confident opinion on this. There is some early promising evidence that these can mitigate pain intensity, um, potentially more so from what I can tell in neuropathic kind of situations, although there you know, may ultimately prove to be uh, an effect in these kind of more nonspecific situations as well. I think that um, it is likely that these are going to have less harmful effects long-term than opioids will. So if that ends up being a substitute on that front, great. Uh, but I don't have a lot of evidence-based information that I can give somebody on this kind of thing. If they're going out and trying it on their own and it seems to be safe, it does not seem to be causing them adverse effects and they say that they're benefiting from it and they are willing to keep spending their money on it, okay, you know, it's a it, it's one of those it's one of those super gray areas. I wish we had more information, and I expect we will, given the gravity of the problem and how much you know research in this particular area is is increasing. Um, but we need you know more generalizable evidence with less heterogeneity. I think would be the goal. I feel like I mean the overwhelming theme so far, and this has been my conclusion in practice, and I think most patients, if they've had chronic back pain, they they come to this conclusion themselves that a daily medicine is is just not not the answer. I think it's okay to have medication when they have flares of pain. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes I, I have some patients once in a while, they'll take a muscle relaxant at night if they're having a really bad day. Again, it's a tranquilizer, more of a tranquilizer. <laughs> yeah. So, but w when the patient gets to the point, even if they have nonspecific back pain, that they just, they're just not getting that relief and they want to go for an epidural steroid injection or they're considering surgery, mm -hmm. how do you have that conversation? And uh, what what do you think? Yeah, these are just increasingly complex and challenging situations, of course. I think the epidural steroid injection conversation, that one, there is some evidence for short-term pain relief, particularly in yeah. ridicul ridiculous pain situations, although long-term outcomes ultimately end up being very similar. But of course, that's not to downplay pain relief in the short term for somebody who is sure. very miserable from ridiculous pain, as you experienced. Um, so that's something that can have a role in that situation. The evidence for those kind of injections in non-ridicular pain, uh, back pain, is far worse as far as its efficacy. Um, compared to placebo injections, um, compared to doing nothing. Again, patients, pe people tend to feel better when you do things to them in many situations compared to not doing yeah. things to them. But the question is, does the steroid have a specific effect on this compared to, you know, 
placebo type injection. And for non-radicular pain syndromes, the evidence is not great for those things. So that's a conversation to, to be had. What is the patient willing to do, try, put up with if uh, if it's placebo or if there's you know adverse effects, infection risk, whatever the case is, then you know that's ultimately, I'm trying to put them in the driver's seat for a lot of these things yeah. from an informed yeah. standpoint. Remember then, a few years yeah, back, right. there was like a contaminated batch mm-hmm. of steroid yeah. and people were getting fungal infections yeah. and a couple of patients died. Yeah. I mean, that, that was just enough for me never to consider that. Right. I know that's <laughs> right. like, and they still the come. Chances are like, that will never happen again, but I just, yeah, yeah. no thanks. And then you. ultimately, when it comes to surgical discussions, that's just, I don't think is the role for, for a primary care clinician. I think it's when a matter of when they have come to the conclusion that they have maximized what they can do in the primary care context from a quote unquote conservative, you know, uh, standpoint, even though I don't typically use that, that term because it kind of implies that we're not, we're holding back. We're not doing <laughs> everything we can for you. Um, but when we've maximized what we have the ability to do from a primary care standpoint, I mean, referral is your remaining option to uh, to a yeah. specialist yeah. kind of uh, to specialist management as far as whether that specialist management will then you know flip a switch and get them to zero pain and full function often not uh, but there are other options that they can try and keep exploring and seeing and seeing what they can what they can come up with from that standpoint so I don't typically go down the rabbit hole of surgical conversations for non clearly upfront surgical issues like from a red right. flag standpoint initially uh, when when we're in that more chronic pain kind of uh, situation persistent pain states that's a more of a referral type thing I think what I what I like about this is the the physical medicine and rehabilitation team is kind of like I call them my tiebreakers mm-hmm. before I go like, I don't know, I, surgery does, just sounds too much. We've done our, I, I'm saying in quotes, our conservative management. What did I miss from mm-hmm. our side with the, with the, with uh, your treatment? Maybe but that might be a good option for a PM&R referral um, mm-hmm. to see what else I could have done differently before we go yeah. all surgical. So. Yep. Agree. I love that. Yeah, I, I think physiatrists do a great job uh, with any kind of musculoskeletal complaint um, and and a lot of neurological complaints as well. But I I do uh, I I do like that that idea as well. I think that uh, if the patient usually usually I try not to get imaging on patients with nonspecific back pain without red flags. Sometimes if the patient's really not responding well. Um, and we've tried some of these conservative things. I will get imaging, especially if they're wanting to go for injections yep. or or considering considering surgery. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's when I'll pull the trigger on that. Austin, do you have any words about the the transition from that where you're you're trying these conservative things and you decide to get imaging and and refer over? Yeah, I agree basically with what you said. I mean, that's even what a lot of guidelines would would have people do. Give it a fair shot, but it's not like you just keep denying people indefinitely for this and you just tell them it's yeah. nonspecific until <laughs> and yeah. you know, until they forever. So, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I think we have done hero's work. We've we've <laughs> talked about so much and I I picked up a lot of great tips about how to talk to patients about this and hopefully we are going to up the statistics, you know, in a favorable way, uh, uh, because you, you gave some statistics about how grim it's been for patients yeah. <laughs> receiving any counseling, yeah. uh, about their back pain. So we'll ask you, do, do you have some take home points for the audience and then, uh, anything that you'd like to plug, it, you should definitely plug your podcast and that sort of thing. All right. Yeah, I have a few things. So uh, take-home points. The first would be to risk stratify using the biomedical and psychosocial approach that I talked about up front. If you need a structured tool for that, you can use the start back tool. Um, please provide education and advice 
for self-management and active management strategies. Don't be a member of the 80% that are not providing education and advice. Please do that. Um, uh, and if you are uncomfortable providing that, we, again, as I said, I'll provide some, some tools for that. Um, avoid inappropriate early imaging and inappropriate early medication use if it's not clearly indicated. And if you want to use medications, gave a tool, the, the pain-calculator.com tool to give some at least data-based, evidence-based kind of dis discussion around how likely is this to help the person uh, compared to harm them. And then the last take-home point would be, please be super mindful of the language that you use with your patients when discussing um, all sorts of things. <laughs> Basically, everything we talked about so far, imaging results, um, if they request an explanation for their back pain going into, you know, pathoanatomic details and things like that, probably not super helpful. Um, and, uh, and em emphasizing more, um, function, functional outcomes and, and positive prognosis for people. Um, so be mindful of the language that you use, um, when addressing people's concerns, um, things to plug. I mean, related to this topic, honestly, there is something that was just published last month, September, 2022, that I think is one of the best comprehensive resources on this. And I have to tip my hat to the Aussies. I'm not Australian, nor do I have any relationship to or connections to Australia. But the uh, they do some of the best uh, research in this realm. I think probably most of the research that I've read on this has in some way been connected to or emanated from Australia. And so they have come out with something that they call the Australian Back Pain Clinical Care Standard. And just Googling that will bring up the result. It was just published last month. It's comprehensive evidence-based guidance on the management of, of, of back pain. It has practical guidance for clinicians, for patients. It even has communication tips like you can ask these questions. Listen for this in the patient's response. Like it's very, very helpful for people who may not have tons of experience in this. It should ideally reiterate a lot of the things that I discussed here. Um, and so it, it also includes some ref, some resources for patients, some websites um, that uh, are, I think, like in the Australian web domain, but they uh, people down there too get back pain. So they can be useful for, for our patients as well. So the Australian Back Pain Clinical Care Standard is fantastic. And uh, and since you mentioned my podcast, I work with a company that promotes kind of exercise and, and for general population as well as coaching competitive athletes called, called Barbell Medicine. We're very strength training and conditioning focused, um, which many of our patients may not be fully prepared for but when they're ready we're we're, we're there for them so <laughs> i think uh it, it would have been it would have been funny to have the video version for when it was me and paul yeah. <laughs> uh talking with you and jordan because you guys are both uh you guys both look like you work out paul and i not so much uh paul and i work out we just uh the results just don't maybe, maybe we need your your help yeah, yeah. <laughs> well i really appreciate you guys having me yeah no trust your back to protect your back thank you for that that's that's great This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy, yummy. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com and sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus twice each month, you can get The Curbsiders Digest, which recaps the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And also, we're committed to high-value practice-changing knowledge, and we want your feedback, so please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or now on Spotify. You can also send an email to ask curbsiders at gmail.com a reminder that this and most episodes are available through vcu health uh, for free cme at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org i wanted to give a special thanks to our writer and producer for this episode isabel valdez and also dr cyrus askin 
and to our whole team. The episode is produced and edited by the team at Podpaste. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media and Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. And so with all that, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Wadden. And I've been the physician assistant of the team, Isabel Valdez. Thank you and good night.